Hi there. Welcome to Season 2 of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Lee Ginnenhall. Lee is a retired school teacher, a volunteer, and mentor at the Cancer Resource Center of the Finger Lakes for men with prostate cancer. He's a personal trainer and uses old school unconventional strength and mobility training. And he's the owner of Dare Rosenmeister Nursery, an antique and modern rose nursery. And he lectures widely throughout the Northeast on sustainable rose growing practices. He's married and has two grown children and a grandson. You'll hear his grandson running up and down the stairs on occasion during this episode. Lee has been cancer free. For 10 years. All right, Lee, welcome to the podcast. Good to see you, Bert. It's great to see you. What kind of cancer were you diagnosed with and how old were you? I was uh, diagnosed with prostate cancer and I was 56 years old. So that was 10 years ago. 10 years ago? Yeah, 10 years ago. August 23rd was when I had my surgery. Wowie. 2010. Congratulations. Thanks. It's, um, it's a benchmark. <laughs> it is indeed. How did you uh, come to find out you had cancer? What, what had you get tested? I was having a routine physical, and um, this time that I went, um, my doctor suggested that she do a PSA blood test as part of it. That stands for prostate-specific antigen, um, and it's where they look for an elevated level of this antigen to see if there's a possibility of prostate cancer activity. Prior to that point, she hadn't been recommending them. She had been advised by the American Urological Society that it was leading to um, an over-identification um, of men with prostate cancer, and folks were being diagnosed with, uh, with cancer who weren't necessarily having cancer. But that previous year, she had a patient who came down with prostate cancer, and she felt terribly guilty. So she had went back to the old practice of, for men over 50, having an annual PSA test to establish a baseline. My problem was, I was 56 and hadn't had the baseline. So um, mm. it was higher than what she would have liked, or I would have liked. So she referred me to a local urologist for a follow-up. And what did that urologist find? I mean, what was the process that He went through um, a nine-month period of ruling out all kinds of other possibilities. There's a variety of things that could cause an increase in a PSA level. Inflammation of the prostate, a whole bunch of other things. So over a course of nine months, he went through the list of all things and ruled them out one by one by one. And then eventually got to the point where he said, you know, I think we need to do a biopsy. And there were also a series of um, PSA exam, uh, a blood test through that period as well. Um, I think there were two additional ones. And the second one went down a little and then the third one went back up. And that was finally the thing that prompted him to say, we better go in and check. So we did the biopsy. Nine months seems like 
a long time of ruling things out. It, it was. I was not that concerned when um, that was going on because I was in this whole thing in my head of, I didn't have any symptoms. I don't have cancer. Right. And then when I was told I had cancer, it was like I was punched in the stomach. What's happened since is I've spoken to other folks, other men who have gone to this urologist, and they've also gone through this nine-month protocol. And one of the men that I'm mentoring, who um, now has prostate cancer, finally got really frustrated after nine months um, of being told that the problem was related to his bladder and being treated for that. And he went somewhere else and found out he had prostate cancer, and that's what was causing his symptoms. He went in there with symptoms and um, now has stage four prostate cancer. No. Yeah. So, um, and the fact that he said nine months of ruling things out, that was, that like hit me like, holy shit, I was really lucky. Yeah, and is it the same doctor? Yeah. Did you say? Mm -hmm. The woman? No. uh, No. uh, This is um, a urologist in town. A man. Is he not aware of the fact that his patient has a stage four diagnosis? Yep. I don't know. Nine months. Um, This friend of mine has now switched to other doctors. Um, He went down to Sloan Kettering and is Mm -hmm. um, now, because of COVID, doing um, telemedical appointments with follow-ups with um, oncologists and radiologists here in Ithaca in consultation with Sloan Kettering. So he's not even seeing this urologist anymore. Yeah, it's a real treat when doctors in cancer hospitals can work in tandem with our local folks, especially at a time like now. And I also had a doctor misdiagnose me over a six month, six, seven month period, telling me that I had hemorrhoids when in fact I had a rectal tumor. Oh man. And I asked to finally see a specialist and the specialist gave me a digital exam and the first words out of his mouth were, do you have cancer in your family? Must. And then came my diagnosis within a week. Must have scared the shit out of you. Yeah. And uh, I saw this doctor in town and he just beelined and just like, you know, went the other direction as fast as he could to avoid me. So, uh, you know, I don't know, what does that communicate? That he gets loud and clear that he made a mistake? Uh, I mean, I hope so. It's so hard to hear when doctors follow these conservative protocols versus like, got issues? Let's give you a prostate exam. Let's, let's look right now. Mm-hmm. Let's check you for cancer. Mm-hmm. Do you know if it's that expensive of, a, of an exam? I have no idea. I know, right. or my assumption is the insurance companies are, um, they have too heavy a hand in procedures, what's being done and what's not being done. That's why second and third opinions are always really important. Yeah, yeah, and there you go. That if the insurance company is being heavy-handed, okay, great, then get a second opinion, get a third opinion. Mm -hmm. And as you and I both know, 
when we have an issue and the doctor is taking what we may not even realize is a conservative approach. You know, we're not thinking cancer. So we're not thinking, oh gosh, I better get a second opinion. We're just listening to our doctors and being guided along. Mm -hmm. And perhaps this conversation, I hope this conversation, will bring to people's attention that there's a lot more that can be done. And you know, there, there's value in taking on that you could have much worse health issues than you imagine. Yeah, you have to be an advocate for yourself. And once you're diagnosed, that becomes even harder because uh, once you're told you have cancer, you're not always, I wasn't always um, as savvy and tuned in because I was still in shock. When, he, um, when the urologist told me that I had cancer, I immediately went to asking about, well, what now? And he talked about a variety of options, one being what's called watchful waiting or active surveillance, where they sit back and periodically, every three to six months, do another biopsy and wait and see. I didn't fit the protocol for that because of my age and the numbers on the PSA exam and the numbers on the prostate biopsy, but he felt that's what he would recommend. But they don't say, you should do this or that. He said, I'd suggest this. Um, I said, so what are the other options? And uh, one was radiation, and the other was surgery. And I said, well, what does the science recommend? And he said, well, it's pretty much a draw. If I send you to a radiologist for a second opinion, the radiologist will say radiology is the way to go, and they'll share statistics and data supporting that. He said, if I send you to a surgeon for a second opinion, um, they'll have comparable data and say surgery is the way to go. Um, he did say that the advantage to doing surgery first is if the cancer returns after the surgery, you can do radiation. If you start with radiation and... Um, the cancer returns, they really can't do surgery. I guess the um, prostate and the surrounding tissue is damaged enough that surgery isn't an option, and then they just go on to chemotherapy. So it seemed pretty clear to me at that point that I, I needed to do surgery, but I wasn't going to have it done locally. I wanted to check out other options and asked for a referral, and he sent me to a guy who was the head of um, urology at Weill Cornell. Down in New York. Yep. So um, I got down there within a couple weeks for an appointment. The doctor squeezed me in. My wife and I went down and he looked at the information and his response was, I would not recommend watchful waiting at all. I think you need to be on the operating table within two to three weeks. The longer we wait, the greater the chance is of the cancer spreading and the greater the chance is that you will be incontinent and or impotent as a result of the surgery. That's quite a uh, prognosis. Scared me. <laughs> I was terrified, um, especially since the local urologist said, 
you know, I think you could do active surveillance or the watchful waiting. So I came back to town and spoke to the urologist and asked for a third opinion and went to um, a urologist in Rochester who was um, highly recommended, one of the top prostate cancer surgeons in the Northeast. And he checked me out, looked at the information and said, well, I recommend surgery. I don't think you need to do it within a couple weeks. He said, we can wait a few months if you need to. And at that point, I needed to put it off because my father had just been uh, diagnosed with uh, metastatic stomach cancer. His stomach had returned, mm. uh, cancer had returned. And um, I needed to help my mother take care of him so he could die at home. At the same point, my wife was scheduled for her second hip replacement surgery. So all those things were converging. Okay, so you get diagnosed with cancer. One doc tells you, you need to do this in two to three weeks, have your surgery. The other doc says you can wait a few months. Your father already has, you said bladder cancer? Uh, stomach cancer. Excuse me. Your father already has stomach cancer and your wife is having her hip replaced. And then there's the urologist who was telling me that, oh, we can just get by with um, watchful waiting. Now the doc that said wait a few months, that wasn't watchful waiting? No, watchful waiting uh, would have been no surgery at all, um, doing biopsies every six months. Now, okay. the biopsy is a pretty invasive procedure. I was told, oh, you know, this is no big deal. When we take the biopsy, you'll feel a little sting every time we take a core. Well, um, what ends up happening is without any medication, without any tranquilizer, without anything, you bend over, they take this hard metal object, stick it in your butt, shove it up until it's in contact with your prostate, and um, then they take 12 samples, three from each quadrant of the prostate, and the prostate's about the size of a walnut. So you pick mm. each of the samples is a core that's about a centimeter wide. So there are... Each, wait, how can you take 12 one centimeter wide samples out of a organ the size of a walnut? Well, they, they punch you... Like it's Are they Swiss a centimeter cheese? in length, but very, very thin? Or do you mean width? Are you certain? Um, I'm not sure. Um, all I know is... Let's hope it's length yeah. and super duper thin. <laughs> well, the thing is, um, it was really painful. That much I'll tell you. Um, and then afterwards, um, my body responded. My um, bladder shut down. It went into spasm, so I had to take medication because I wasn't able to urinate. So for days after, I was passing blood and blood clots in my urine. There was blood and um, blood clots in semen when I'd ejaculate. Um, and I mm. was on medication that allowed me to urinate because I couldn't urinate. Um, but what that did, and they didn't tell me about it, was that when I'd orgasm, nothing would come out. I would have retrograde ejaculation. Yeah, that's an odd thing. So um, 
here it is, if I had gone for watchful waiting, I would be doing that every three to six months. I had asked him okay. what would be the advantage to watchful waiting. Would I still end up needing um, surgery? And he said, well, over time you would probably still need surgery, but you would gain quality of life. And I said, what do you mean quality of life? He said, well, you know, there are side effects from the surgery, and over time, we would be delaying when you'd have to be dealing with those things. And he really, he didn't go into a lot of detail about quality of life, and I was still deer in the headlights. The, yeah. the quality of life issues are the I words, incontinence and impotence. Well, before we get into the quality of life issues, I uh, have a few questions for you. So your doc told you a surgeon would re recommend surgery. Your doc said a radiologist would recommend radiation. Are there upsides to doing radiation first? Because I believe, you know, with surgery, there is risk of impotence and incontinence. And with radiation, is there also risk of impotence and incontinence? Or what are the upsides? So what happens radiation? with radiation is that initially you don't have those side effects. Over time, those side effects do develop. Is that right? Typically. Um, the other thing is that with radiation, oftentimes there's surrounding tissue that's damaged. So there's uh, sometimes damage done to the bladder or the bowel. And those, that kind of damage is irreversible. With surgery, um, they try to do what's called nerve-sparing surgery when they remove the prostate. On either side of the prostate are um, it, uh, band on either side of nerves that run down. And they very carefully try to peel them off, kind of like the skin on an onion. It's the damage to the nerves, those nerves when the prostate's removed, that causes the problem. So in the old days, didn't they just remove everything? They would just cut the prostate out top and bottom, take it out. The, the nerves were gone and you couldn't get it up and you had no control of your bladder at all. The sphincter mm. on your uh, bladder is right up against the prostate. So even nowadays when they do the surgery, they remove the sphincter on your bladder. So one of the things you need to do is learn how to activate the slow twitch rather than the fast twitch muscle, which was the sphincter, to control your bladder. So initially after prostate cancer surgery, you don't have bladder control. Um, I was lucky I was in relatively good shape. I work out regularly and I saw a physical therapist before and after the surgery um, to develop um, those other muscles, pelvic floor strengthening. Um, and then I'd spoken to the surgeon in Rochester about it and he thought that was a great idea and in fact since then has recommended that folks see a physical therapist with that um, specialty. That was something I ended up researching and finding out on my own. That's another one of those things where you need to be an advocate for yourself. Um, and that physical therapist at that point initially was just doing general physical therapy and was 
also working with folks on pelvic floor strengthening, mostly women, but some for men with prostate cancer surgery or radiation issues. And now her whole practice is specifically just pelvic floor strengthening. Is that Jillian? No, this is uh, Trumbull. Trumbull, yeah, there's a woman by the name of Jillian who works at Trumbull. Oh, okay. I'm trying to, um, trying to remember um, Trumbull's first name. Yeah, I'm actually seeing her. I'm actually seeing this pelvic floor specialist because there are issues that seem to have arisen from the surgery and radiation from the, not the liver, but the colorectal uh, surgery and radiation. Um, there's, you know, after I urinate, there's a little bit of uh, dribbling that happens. Uh -huh. There seems to have been a weakening of the uh, sphincter muscles mm -hmm. that in this, in the sphincter muscle, uh, in the, uh, yeah, the one up in the bladder, I had a, uh, speaking of painful exams, I had a, um, this catheter test exam. Oh, uh, yes, a cystoscopy. Yeah, they told me it'd be slightly uncomfortable. Oh, yes. <laughs> they shove a and rod up your I penis. screamed profanity at the top of my lungs. Just like, it was so painful. And I said, I'm so glad the doctor lied to me and told me it was going to be uncomfortable because I would not have agreed to this. I had the same procedure done. That was one of those things during the nine months that they were ruling things out. He went to look oh. if I had um, any cancerous uh, issues or other problems with the bladder. You know, Lee, right now, we're not encouraging people to get tests. We're actually, <laughs> this is a discouraging conversation. There is that. Oh. It's, it's well worth it because you and I are both here today. Exactly. Because we exactly. went through the hard parts and um, we sought out the best medical care we could. We advocated for ourselves. And along the way, we were lucky. Yes, we exactly. We both sought second and third opinions. We had many tests done, and we were lucky, and we're both still here. And then you navigate what follows. Like I'm also seeing the physical therapist because I now have Peyronie's mm -hmm. disease as a result of, I mean, it could be the radiation, it could be the surgery, but some months after the surgery, my erection bent hard to the left. It used to be straight. And then a few months after that, it straightened back out again. And a few months after that, it bent to the left again. And so the physical, the pelvic floor specialist doesn't, you know, know what she can. I, my understanding is, you know, there's not a lot she can do for that. But when I spoke to uh, my urologist who gave me uh, the cystoscopy, mm -hmm. yeah, um, I want to forget that one. <laughs> <laughs> You know, she had said, well, you know, there's these three different things we can do to help you. And each one could possibly cause impotence. And I was like, well, I'm not having pain. I'm not having discomfort. There's clearly no reason for me to pursue this. It's just a bend. But yeah, I'm seeing the physical floor specialist right now to try to strengthen those muscles, um, also to relax muscles. She seems to think that the surgery and the radiation have my pelvic floor like in a reaction mode where you know she just spends time just like relaxing these muscles and she's giving me exercises to relax the muscles because you know my abdomen has been cut in my abdomen i don't even know what that is <laughs> because my abdomen has been cut into twice and you know my uh, anus and sphincter muscles and, and rectum 
were removed and it appears to her as though my pelvic floor, if not my pelvis, is just in this still in a reaction mode. You know, when, when we go to protect ourselves, we tighten, we constrict, we pull away. And she says that my muscles are all so tight. And hopefully through working with her, I'm going to resolve this issue of, you know, I pee and then a minute later or a few minutes later, there's a little bit dribble. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wait, I have to pee significantly. It's like the, 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 the sphincter muscle just stops. It just tightens and closes up. And this is a result of, you know, surgery and radiation in the uh, pelvic region. And goodness, I could go on and on and on about the radiation yes. and all the side effects that have. Yeah, what ends up happening, um, and I think this is what you're experiencing, is um, the surgeons do their work and the radiologists do their work. And when they're done, they're done and they send you on. But there was a whole uh, bunch of stuff I ended up finding out on my own about penile rehabilitation. Um, and that's something that might have made a difference for you as well. After you have traumatic surgery like that, not only does the pelvic floor muscles respond, but the penis responds as well. And I had to um, maintain blood flow in the penis and get erections, even though with the... Um, nerve trauma initially it wasn't happening so I ended up getting a uh, penile pump and using that several times a day I ended up having injections you learn how to inject yourself in the shaft of your penis to give yourself an injection wow that's uh, are you talking about like a um, a hypodermic a, needle yes like a, a needle so like a needle so like just it's the exact same needle that a diabetic would use not a syringe well, oh, well a syringe a, yes a syringe and a needle but i was thinking like a, a syringe with just an opening you're uh, without a needle on the end you're talking about a needle in the shaft of your penis through the cartilage of your penis yes self-administered yes i can imagine myself just standing there and my arm not moving well the what's a little trickier than that <laughs> is um, before you can do it yourself, the urologist has to show you how to do it. So you're in the office and he's holding your penis, which hasn't been getting erections on its own for a while. And he injects you and it feels, well, it's as bad as the biopsy. And then he said, I'll be back in 10 minutes to see how the erection is. The, um, because it takes about 10 minutes for the chemical to spread through the penal tissue to cause the engorgement. At that point, they're trying to get just the right amount because if they don't give you enough, you don't get a full erection. If they give you too much, the erection will last longer than 45 minutes. If it lasts longer than 45 minutes, you have to go to the emergency room where they have to do a procedure to relieve the blood buildup in your penis. So after he comes back in and checks to see that I have an erection, I have to sit in the waiting room for 45 minutes until the erection goes down. No, no, <laughs> no. And I asked for this procedure because the research was showing that it 
was very important. My surgeon would not agree to it for the first, until like a year had passed. The research I was reading was suggesting that you needed to start this within the first month after surgery. So I kept pushing and pushing and finally got him to agree to it. And what's the procedure called? Well, it's uh, an injection that you do to cause um, an erection. Now, one of the nice things with this is once you have the erection, after an orgasm, you still stay hard. So um, it does... From when you have this procedure? Uh, every, well, every time you want an injection, you, uh, you want an erection, you inject yourself. And does it hurt as much every time? Every time it does, yes. And this was basically training your body to generate an erection to send the blood to the penis? Uh, what it, it was flushing, uh, creating a blood flow to the penis, flushing out the old blood, preventing the development of scar tissue, which is what causes Peyronie's disease. It's the development of scar tissue in the shaft of the penis. Um, typically, when it happens, it's on one side more than another, which causes the bend. Mm. So the use of a pump and or the injections keep the penile tissue healthy. Along with okay, that is so... taking um, Cialis or Viagra, any of, of those things on a regular basis for that first year or so to continue to provide as much support for normal erection as possible. Yeah, so I'm thinking about myself, how you know that window has closed and... The, tell me again, what causes the, you said it was not scar yeah, tissue. Yeah, it's the, the development of scar tissue. Development of scar tissue. In the and shaft of the penis. Scar tissue develop in my penis from radiation or surgery, based on what you know. Um, well, radiation. He is not a yeah. doctor, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, I'm just asking him. <laughs> radiation causes scar tissue to form. The other thing that could happen... Um, I don't know how sexually active you were in the months after all this surgery, but either typically you're not in the mood or there's assault to the nerves and the muscles in the area, so we're not having erections on the same basis as we used to. A long period of time of not having erections leads to the development of scar tissue. Hmm. I do not recall. I do remember the, the six months of chemotherapy that followed. I wouldn't say I had an active sex life, but sex was regular. Uh, but I also recall, you know, my wife asking me to have sex, inviting me to have sex, and I would look at her and be like, "There's, I love you. <laughs> There's no way this is happening. I'm so sick from this chemotherapy. So could have been a variety of things that... Uh, could have been a variety of things that caused it to happen. So that's something but. worth exploring. Um, and the other thing is, um, I would check and see if there's um, some treatments that will um, help deal with it that are not so threatening to the ability to still get an erection. Yeah, my urologist said one was to inject something into the tightened side, mm -hmm. the scar tissue side that pulls and causes the bend. She said that can cause impotence. Uh, I don't know the percentage though, uh, you know, the, 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 the amount of risk. Again, why 
in my world, why take any risk? Because uh, you know, it still works. Um, and then the other option was to inject something into the other side and cause that to tighten up and then straighten the penis. Possibility of impotence, permanent impotence. And then there is a surgical procedure, which also has a possibility of impotence. And I just think, you know, without... Mm -hmm. Since I don't have an impotence issue, there's no reason for me to pursue those. But I can certainly look into penile rehabilitation if there's something that could be done over time, naturally, that can reduce the scar tissue. It's certainly worth looking into. I hadn't, I had never heard of this. I appreciate this. I have a friend, guy I met, you know, while I was doing research and advocating for myself. Um, I found a website called Frank Talks, which is um, a website that was developed for men with erection issues, whether it's Peyronie's or impotence. Um, so um, I ended up meeting this guy who set up the website, and he's a um, therapist, works as a in a urologist office as a sexual dysfunction therapist helping men and I can send you contact information for him that might be Excellent. helpful. I just pulled it up. It's franktalk.org. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, the administrator is Paul. You know, Lee, what's coming to my mind right now is somebody who is facing prostate cancer or has just had the surgery and has time and they're listening to us right now. Like this may change the direction of their life, just providing them information that their physician may not even be aware of. In the 10 years since my surgery, I've been mentoring men with prostate cancer through the Cancer Resource Center, the Finger Lakes. And in meeting with men prior to them receiving treatment, I don't go through the full story. You, I provide just enough information for them to navigate the piece that they're in and say, you know, there's some other issues. These are some issues that we'll talk about when you get to that stage. Because it can be overwhelming to have that volume of information. And then, like we had talked about, you end up being so fearful of some of these things. So it's pretty much, you know, you take one day at a time. You deal with what you have to deal with right now. But once you get through those, the surgery or the radiation, then it's important to take a look at the next step. And that's when penile therapy, rehabilitation therapy becomes important. These guys are so fortunate to have you as their mentor. I, was, I had some guys that helped me out. So, you know, just playing it forward. Yeah, it's a, be it's a beautiful thing. You had mentioned the biopsy being painful, and they told you it wouldn't be. Interestingly, there's a guest that was on season one who was also an Ithaca resident, and he didn't have much discomfort with the biopsy. He was told it was going to be really painful, and then he was like, huh, that wasn't too bad. So just saying that for anyone who's listening, <laughs> <laughs> there is a possibility that it might not be so painful, but as you're contemplating the pain, uh, what Lee and I have both learned is uh, life is far more painful and difficult when they're chasing after diagnosis versus being ahead of it and having tests done and being your own advocate is so important. I'm 50 years old right now, and when I was 36, 
maybe a month away from being 37, I was diagnosed with stage 2 rectal cancer. And when I would go into the doctor's office, signs would say, if you remember the birth of rock and roll and fins on cars, it's time for your colonoscopy. Well, I was a little young for that. That sign meant nothing to me. Well, now the number's down to 45. The age is now 45 as far as when to start getting your colonoscopies. And when I talked to friends about getting their colonoscopies, my, my buddies were in their you know, mid to late 40s and 50. They say, ah, oh, man, I, uh, I'm squeamish and I don't want to do that. And you, know, you can't force anyone to do anything. So I just provide them with the information and let them know that you're doing yourself a favor. You know, it'd be wonderful if they only found polyps mm -hmm. or precancerous polyps and removed them. I was so young, there was no reason for me to get a colonoscopy. And had I gotten a colonoscopy a couple of years prior, they would have seen precancerous polyps and removed them. Possibly, possibly. I believe it's so important to put a long, healthy life ahead of avoiding discomforts, you know? So you spoke with three doctors and decided to go with the surgery. And how far out from the diagnosis did the surgery happen? Do you recall? It's been 10 years. Yeah. It was probably um, in March sometime I got the diagnosis. So March, April, May, June, July, August, five months. But what ended up happening was I took most of um, May and June off to go downstate and help take care of my dad while he was dying. He died June 26th. Three days later, my wife had her second hip replacement surgery, June 29th. Eight weeks later was when I had my surgery. And we scheduled it eight weeks later because that was the amount of time it would take till she was able to drive. Mm, right, wow, yeah, it's amazing how life-saving procedures are sometimes based on our ability to get ourselves there and who's gonna support us and how that's all gonna work. You know, what's also coming to my mind is your mom had a husband with cancer and a son with cancer. Your children had a father with cancer and a grandfather with cancer. That's a lot. Yeah, and their mother was going to be having her second hip replacement surgery, all within and their mother, yeah. nine weeks. Yeah, sorry, Mom, I don't mean to diminish mm -hmm. uh, the... Uh, yeah, <laughs> the dangers and difficulties of hip replacement surgery, but that's that's so much, Lee. Yeah, and I did, I, did, did I that... didn't realize for quite a while after when I would tell the story, I said, you know, all this happened in a year, and then maybe a couple of years into afterwards, I looked at the calendar and I said, it wasn't spread over a year. That was within nine weeks. Yeah, it's like your mind spread it out over a year in memory to make it manageable, perhaps. You know, my wife uh, ended our marriage in November of 2010. In January of 2011, I lost my job. In May, I moved out of the house. And on September 1st of 2011, I was diagnosed with a recurrence of stage four rectal cancer metastasized to my liver in a 10-month period. It's, uh, it's what I thought of when you told me all of this for, like, for your children or your mom 
or other loved ones who are just like, what is happening in the Ginnenthal family? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I know your mom from when you were a little boy. So yeah. Um, yeah. I end up thinking about what it must have been like for her dealing with that as mm. well. I can tell you it was very difficult for her. Uh, it was hard for her to, she acknowledged in a, uh, in a group conversation once how difficult it was for her to, how would I say this, to, you know, to operate well, to, to be a support, because it was just so damn scary for her. And I often would think, you know, what are my friends thinking? They're like, Bert's had his marriage end, lost his job, he's not living with his wife and kids, and now he has cancer again. Like, whoa, what is happening? And it, I you know, can only imagine the conversations they must have had. I can think of the conversations I would have had. I think of what I think right now when you tell me your dad dying of cancer, you being diagnosed with cancer, and your wife having to have her hip replaced. That's I'm curious, what did you, what did your family members do? What did you do? What was helpful? You know, I just went into survival mode one day at a time, looking at the calendar, knowing when things were going to happen, trying to get some regularity in my life, talking to um, friends and family members, and then also getting involved with the Cancer Resource Center. Um, there's a prostate cancer support group. And I started going to that group uh, before my surgery. It was sporadic because I was in and out of town at that point. But family and friends are essential. But what I'd say is being in a support group with other folks who have walked the path you're about to walk is probably the most important thing you can do. When I went for the third opinion, one of the questions the surgeon asked me was, have you spoken to the experts about this? And I looked at him and I mm. said, experts? I said, that's why I'm here. And he kind of smiled and he said, no. I meant, have you spoken to other men with prostate cancer? And then it was like, ah. <laughs> um, that's, those are the conversations that... Um, enable you to navigate it so that you know that others have walked this path. We've all experienced things in our own way, but although we're walking this path alone, because even though your, your family and friends are right by you, when you're told you have cancer, you're, you have a sense of this aloneness, that it's you, Yes. And your mortality. And having other people to talk to who have had that experience to say, it's okay, this is typical, this is what you need to be aware of. Just coaches, guides on the side as you navigate that path. Yeah, you nailed it when you said the aloneness. Because people who've been through difficult things can tell you, oh, I've been through something difficult as well, but only those who have faced their mortality can really look you in the eye and be able to give you some peace of mind knowing that they've been through this, they've managed this, they've 
they know the grief and the heartache of it. And there's something about looking those people in the eye that lets you know it's manageable. Yeah. One of the hardest things, friends are so well-intentioned and they'll say, oh, you know, tell me what I can do. Well, it's very hard when you're going through that to think about what someone can do and to ask someone to make a meal or come by or spend time with you. And then the other thing is when they approach you with that look on their face, when they hear mm. that a friend has cancer or a relative has cancer, and it's that pity party look that, oh, you poor thing. You know, that's hard to take sometimes and to be gracious and thankful. Um, and then the, oh, yeah. the other thing are the folk, well, there are then the folks who come and give all kinds of advice for alternative therapies and how they know of all these folks who didn't have to have surgery or radiation. And if you would just do this, or, you know, probably if your diet was different, you wouldn't have gotten this. And then there are the folks that come along and say, I'm praying for you. Now, I'm not um, a deeply religious, traditionally religious person. Prayer isn't something that's part of my life. But what I learned to do was to be thankful for their expression of caring. And what I would yeah. suggest to folks when you hear someone has cancer and you don't know what to say to them, because we really don't know what to say on, under those circumstances, is I'm thinking about you and I care about you and I'm going to continue to check in on you on a regular basis. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah I, I, if I could just jump in before I forget, because I wanted to mention this several times and it slips out of my mind. In addition to the person with cancer getting support, the caregivers need support. Amen to that. Caregivers often don't get the support they need. They try to push through and they're, they're like, why should I be getting support? I have a partner, a spouse, a loved one who is dealing with this. And in fact, it's a huge undertaking to be a caregiver for someone navigating cancer. Yeah, uh, that's another thing that the Cancer Resource Center or the Finger Lakes on West State Street in Ithaca does an outstanding job of. And that's providing support services also for the caregivers. Um, I'm doing... There's a caregiver support group, right? You got it, yeah. And um, with the prostate cancer support group, sometimes the partners of uh, men with prostate cancer will come to the group. And sometimes when we meet, it'll be the partners and the individual with the cancer in the group. And then sometimes we would split up into the caregivers talking to each other. And then the, the guys with cancer talking to each other. And then us coming back together. So that, that fluid combination of grouping was real helpful as well. And I can see how the conversations together would help being able to hear other caregivers and other uh, cancer patients discuss what they're going through and the separate conversations uh, with, you know, someone going through it can really be struggling with the kind of, you know, quote, support their caregivers providing. Caregivers can get you know, really frustrated, want to pull their hair out with how difficult it is to care for a person. Because, you know, 
a cancer diagnosis puts you under a microscope it, and, and it kind of puts you on steroids. Whoever you are, it's on steroids. Folks would say to me, I don't know how you do this. I don't, I don't know what, how I would go through this. I don't know what I would do. And my response has become, I think you would do what you always do in life. It might be a little more intensified, but we are who we are. We're not going to change our response. And I get that you can't imagine who you would be, and I hope you never have to. It's a, it's a difficult thing, and the more support we can get for one another, it, it, it makes such a difference. And I always tell folks when they want to support a friend with a diagnosis, I suggest they offer to do the most specific thing they can think of. You know, hey, I'm taking the afternoon off on Wednesday. Can I bring you dinner? Mm-hmm. Or I've got Friday off. Do you need any rides to appointments? Or I've got a lot of uh, um, personal time, you know, and I can use some. May I give you a ride? I once had a friend give me a ride to the hospital for treatment and brought me back. And when we got back into town, he said, I said, thank you so much. I so appreciate it. And he's like, um, that was easy. He's like, I'll gladly do more. In fact, please ask me to do more. You know, he wanted to contribute. And uh, on the other side of the coin, the second time I was diagnosed, I wasn't with my wife anymore, and I was renting a room from a friend. And I didn't have a primary support person. My siblings are in California. You know, my mom and stepdad were up in Auburn, New York, and their lives weren't really such that they could come down here a lot. Uh, I ended up hearing about a Helping Hands website. And I went to this website, put in my name, put in my information, put in when I had appointments and needed rides, when I would like to have meals brought to me, when I'd like someone to come for company, and, or when I need prescriptions picked up. And I emailed my community. I don't know how much Facebook I was doing. Well, 2010, it was, it was getting moving, 2011. But, you know, 2011. I asked my community if they would sign up to support me because I didn't have what I needed and it's uncommon for folks to ask for all that they need and so when that doesn't happen because and I will acknowledge that it took one diagnosis and some really powerful training prior to that diagnosis in a certain uh, leadership program I was in where I saw that I wouldn't ask for help and I saw what a barrier it is for me so aside from folks like me who have way too much experience with cancer, for folks who get diagnosed with it, uh, for the first time that don't ask for it, when it comes to people saying, you know, if, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do, that's so broad that it can re be really difficult to ask, except for maybe, you know, some of the closest people in our lives. So, you know, the question is, you know, you know, can I do this? Oh, no, I don't need that. Can I do something else? Like, you know, until you make it really clear to the person, I want to help you. I want to be a contribution. I'm, I want to take time out of my day, you know, because it, and it may, you may have to ask a few times. It may take a bit because it's, it can be harder for some folks to ask for the help they need until you look over at their spouse and you see the look on their face like, oh, please, please, please help. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> They're quietly begging you with their eyes <laughs> to please chip in. And oh, my goodness. Yeah. The, the poor you, you said so many things, you know, the, the poor you look. There would be times where 
you know, my, my chemotherapy both times, I did six months of post-surgery chemotherapy both times. The second time it was seven months and it laid me out. And if I got the oh poor thing look when I could barely move and I was nauseous and felt horrible, sure. But there'd be times I would be feeling fine and just doing my thing and folks would give me the, the oh poor thing look. And I'm like, I don't think you're responding to me. I think you're responding to your thoughts about cancer and the future you're imagining and you're responding to that. Because <laughs> right now, I'm right here and I'm okay. Yep. Well-intentioned friends, yeah. It's, it's hard and, and I don't want this to leave people's friends, you know, feeling uh, discouraged from offering help. But yes, we, we do get all the alternative therapies in the world offered to us. And I just graciously thank people for taking the time and letting me know. And then occasionally you get a person who doesn't stop and they just want to keep pushing you to eat a, I don't know, Cuban dung beetle that they read will cure cancer or something. Yeah. Oh my goodness, it's, it's getting cancer, it's fascinating the different things. I mean, we, we could do comedy shows for cancer survivors. Mm -hmm. And we'd all be howling, laughing at the things people have said. Oh, yeah. But you know, enough of that. The, the visits to the urologist, you know, <laughs> just done. Yes, I was <laughs> sitting there with an erection for 45 minutes. <laughs> How many other guys were sitting in the office for 45 minutes with, with erections, not wanting to make eye contact or looking at each other and laughing hysterically. Yeah. I mean, or how many of them were comical? there because they weren't getting an erection and had no idea what was in <laughs> store for them. <laughs> they didn't know they were going to be blessed with a needle in the penis. Oh my. So how long did you do that at home? How long did you have to do these, uh, these injections to kind of what rehabilitate your penis after about I bet it was maybe eight or ten times I could no longer bring myself to doing it mm. it was it hurt I was worried about the correct amount the doctor had calibrated it very well so it never went more than like 40 minutes but the thing that was one of the things that was really hard was the lack of spontaneity in sex at that point. Mm -hmm. Because old reliable was not <laughs> always ready to stand and deliver. Ah. So, you know, what do you do? You say, okay, tonight I'm going to go, <laughs> I'll be right out. I'm going into the bathroom. I'm going to inject myself. It'll take about 10 minutes. And, um, Please be ready then, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The lack That's of spontaneity uh, was, that was a hard thing, you know? And then difficult. you, um, what, I, what I learned and I still struggle with, still after this amount of time, is how I look at myself as a man. I'm able to get an erection now. Most of the time, I can do it with stimulation. Sometimes I need Cialis. But because of the surgery, when I have an orgasm, there is no ejaculate anymore. The prostate cancer, the prostate was removed, the vas deferens, the seminal vesicles, all the parts that create semen and the parts that would connect the testicles to the urethra are gone. So although the testicles are still making sperm, it doesn't go anywhere. The body reabsorbs it. 
and the organs that produce the semen, which is the bulk of an ejaculate, sperm is a very small percentage of it, are no longer there. So, mm. um, you know, when you have an orgasm and nothing comes out, it's, it's just weird. Lee, I took a medication to, you know, from my urologist to try to uh, stop the, you know, the, the dribbling that treatment caused. And one of them worked well, but gave me that symptom. When I was having sex and I would ejaculate, there would be nothing. And it's amazing how much that is part of the experience. It's uh, there's a certain I don't know there's a certain sensation of it passing through the penis that causes that, that that causes stimulation, but it was very much missing and it's a different kind of orgasm. Yeah. Over time, I learned they in working through folks through Frank talks and my friend Paul, who is now the. Um, head of the Erectile Dysfunction Foundation, you learn how to have an orgasm again. You have to learn it. One... Really? Well, you know, initially the, the nerves aren't doing what they need to do. The plumbing isn't hooked up the way it used to be hooked up. And what would what's over time started to happen was that I noticed that the orgasms were different. They felt more full body rather than specific to the penis. And, um, you know, when you orgasm, you feel that spasm with each ejaculation. Mm -hmm. And typically, what, there's two to maybe five ejaculations in an orgasm? Ballpark, kind of? Mm -hmm. All right. Um, with, um, since the surgery and doing the rehab, um, when I have an orgasm, it feels like I'm spasming or ejaculating 10, 15, sometimes up to 20 times in one orgasm. Um, and it's something that I've learned how to control and encourage, and it depends on the level of stimulation. Ah. But it's, um, it's not like it happens all on its own. The mind has to be involved with it. You know, that's a, when I talk to guys about that, they say, wow, that sounds great. And in some ways, yes, that's, that's lovely. But you know, I sure miss the ejaculate. So there's active participation in the climax. Yeah. And I find it interesting what you said, because I've always felt an orgasm from my head to my toes. Like my entire body feels the entire thing. So for you, that didn't happen until after Well, sometimes the surgery. it would, but even it, it's a different feeling in terms of where it is in the whole body. You know, I've... I've it's yeah. Just, yeah, and when you don't have... It's like the, the penis, obviously, is the focal point mm -hmm. of the orgasm and when there's no ejaculation. Yeah, so it just... It doesn't, uh, doesn't feel the same. I mean, I, and I will, as I said, it felt odd to me, but I haven't, I'm not accustomed to it. It was just a, a one-time thing. And I was like, no, no. It, my urologist said, yeah, got the, for me, you know, with this medication, the uh, ejaculate went up into the bladder. Yeah, it's called like, retrograde. Retro She's like, no, it's not. It's called retrograde ejaculation. 
retrograde ejaculation. One other thing that happens that they don't tell you about is that after prostate cancer surgery, there's a, a small decrease in the length and the girth of the penis. Hmm. Sometimes you gain it back, typically not really, but the penile rehabilitation will minimize the loss of length and girth. And that brings us back to Frank Talks. Yeah. And again, advocating for yourself and doing research and learning about penile rehabilitation. If you are going through prostate cancer, look that up right now. If you know someone who is, tell them about this because we, uh, our sex lives matter to us. And our functioning penises matter to us. For sure. See, it is, it is part of the primal part of who we are. It's part of the human condition. We love it. So you had the band of nerves peeled away carefully from your prostate. The prostate was removed. Mm -hmm. And then so that suggests to me that not only did you have to learn how to gain erections again, you also needed to learn how to hold your urine again. Yeah, And that's where physical therapy came into play. The one complication I had with all of this is that um, in nerve-sparing surgery, they're very careful not to damage any of the nerves. In my situation, the cancer was not through the whole prostate. I was lucky. It was localized. And there was a tumor on one side of the prostate. But that tumor happened to be located right against the nerve bundle. Prostate cancer is spread Mm. not by the lymph system, but by the nervous system. So only or primarily initially primarily or almost only uh, once prostate cancer is in the lymph system by then it's metastasized through your whole body. So the initial spread is through nerves um, because the tumor was right up against the nerve bundle. The surgeon took out a section of the nerves on one side to biopsy them to see if it had um, entered the nerve. So um, that, that made the recovery period longer in terms of getting full function back, although um, I was able to control my urine probably within less than a month. There, there was still some leakage and seepage, but generally I could control my urine. Within a month? Yeah, four, maybe five weeks. I was lucky, but, you know, like I said, I, ex- I was in good shape going into it. Um, I did the um, physical therapy before and after. Um, the doctor told me you needed to walk um, as much as possible. So the night of after the surgery, I was doing laps in the re- recovery room. Amazing, right? The next day, they I mean, they cut me from my sternum down to just above my penis and then from behind my testicles, you know, and my Mm -hmm. anus just, you know, opened me up, removed everything. And the next day they had me walking around. (laughs) It's like, are you sure (laughs) (laughs) that you want me to do this? They're like, yep. Yep. So, um, with, within a few days of being home, I guess maybe by, yeah, maybe fourth day after being home, I was up to doing a mile walk and, it was, 
oh, two to three weeks after the surgery. So this would be a couple weeks, uh, about a week and a half after the catheter was removed, opening day of school. And I was a teacher my entire life. In fact, I started going to school the day after Labor Day in 1959 mm -hmm. when I started in kindergarten. So we're taking a look at many years of the day after Labor Day going to school. Yeah. Here came that day and I wasn't going to school. I took the semester off. And a good friend of mine called up the night before and said, I'm coming by tomorrow morning. Let's go for a walk together, which was fantastic. We went to Treman State Park. We started at the bottom of the trail. We walked to the top of the trail and back down. And that did so much for me on so many levels. One, it was the first day of school and it took my mind off of the fact that I wasn't there. Yeah. Um, second of all, the walking was great for my body. And third, it was a real sense of accomplishment that, you know, within less than three weeks of prostate cancer surgery, I was hiking up and down that gorge trail. Incredible. Now, were you wearing a catheter or a, an adult undergarment? Um, I was wearing an adult undergarment at that point. Uh, the catheter stayed in for the first 11 days. And around that, I want to give another heads up to any men who have to use a catheter for any length of time. One of the things they forgot to tell me was that you need to lubricate the catheter where it enters the penis. I didn't know about that. And here it is, I'm doing all these walks all the time and walking around the house. Mm. So I had to when I was in the hospital. I didn't even ask. I hope it was okay. I lubricated the catheter because it kept hurting, it kept pulling. Well, I didn't think, you know, it hurt and all, but I ended up getting scabs and sores around the opening to my penis which then oh made it my. even worse. What's that? Uh, it made it hurt even worse. So um, heads up, yeah. guys. Use some lubrication on the catheter. Indeed. And how did you deal with these scabs and sores? What was, how long did that last? Until I started, I was, when I complained to the doctor and he said, oh, you're supposed to be lubricating that. And it... Yeah, and they may have told you with the other 80 things they told you. Yeah. We get so much information. I remember when I went in for my pre-chemo appointment, you know, I walked out with a binder, literally a three-inch binder full of information. And I was like, like what am I supposed to do with this? Mm -hmm. it's, it, read this whole thing? For me, what it was is just being very clear with the doctors and nurses what I'm experiencing, what the side effects are, what I'm not experiencing, giving them as much information as possible. Because you can't retain everything they tell you. And, and it's their responsibility to tell you. I was lucky in my pre-op appointment, the physician's assistant sat down with my wife and I, and he showed us an animated view of what the robotic laparoscopic prostate cancer removal surgery involved. Hmm. And animated cartoon version was okay. That amount I could deal with because it didn't make it look so real. About a year later, our, the surgeon who operated on me came down to Ithaca to do a talk to the prostate cancer support group at the Cancer Resource Center. 
and my wife and I are sitting there with other couples and individuals. And he said, well, I'd like to show you, you know, what, what the Da Vinci machine does and what the procedure's like. And I assumed, oh, we're gonna see an animation. Well, it was the actual surgery with the view inside that he saw through the fiber optics. Incredible. That was kind of hard to take. So I'd recommend if you're gonna take a look at this stuff, do the animated version before. And once you're on the other side and feeling okay and you wanna explore and see what's really involved, then take a look at a real film version. And I would probably say that for any of the surgeries that a person goes through. You know, there's a, an appropriate amount of information to have. You need to know what's mm -hmm. going on, but you don't have to poke and prod too hard. When I went in for a second opinion at Memorial Sloan Kettering, the doc gave me a sigmoidoscopy and I could see this screen that they were looking at and I saw the tumor in my rectum and in my mind it was, you know, red, purple, blue. I mean, I, I, I gosh, I don't really, re all I recall is just it looked so, it was so unpleasant to look at. It was so difficult to see. And with a rectal tumor, it's, you know, the, the, the digestive tract is considered, you know, um, outside of the body. It's like an external organ because, you know, it's not inside a cavity in your body. Food goes down and food goes into your mouth, goes down your throat, through your digestive tract and out of the base of your torso. It doesn't actually go into your body. And it's a exposed tumor for that reason. So everything you eat passes along this and rubs against it. And you, know, you eat a lot of fiber in your food and all of a sudden you know, there's pain when you're moving your bowels. It's, uh, it's really something when you have awareness about tumors that you otherwise may not have had. Like for you, you, know, you, you, started, you, you saw video of the surgery being done just brought your attention to something that clearly you would have been happier not seeing, you know? And when I saw my tumor, could see it, literally see it there in my body, it was, uh, and then I would feel it, you know, at various times during the day when I was moving my bowels. It's, mm, it, it just, it can really, like for me, it kind of just filled me with an awareness that was uh, unpleasant. It was disturbing. It could, it could easily stimulate that, the, uh, could easily stimulate the get this out of me response. And fortunately, I had someone call me when I was first diagnosed and she said, Bert, I responded that way and I wish I hadn't. Get a second diagnosis. Ask your doctor, how much time do I have before it goes to the next stage so I can get another diagnosis? You know, my doc, I think he said, like, you know, you definitely want to start treatment in a few months. My whole body just relaxed. I said, okay. Like, you know, because if you don't know how much time you have to get a second opinion, a third opinion, you know, you feel like you're just running as fast as you can, afraid that you may not do it in time. Having this information was so valuable. 
So seeing it and feeling it in my body had me wanted out so fast. And my friend, fortunately for me, let me know that it's best to find out how much time you have before the next stage so you know what kind of window you have to get second and third opinions. And then when you feel the sensations or see the tumor in a procedure prior to surgery, you know, when it's one like mine, it doesn't just take over your mind and have you want to run into the treatment as fast as you can. It allows you to, you know, as you did, you know, speak to a surgeon, speak to a radiologist, find out what each one of them would do, speak to, you know, your urologist about the different options and then go inquire with other physicians about the pros and cons of each one. It's so important. So important. I guess the other thing I'd say, the hardest time to go through is before you actually make the decision. It's that from when you're first told you have cancer until you actually start treatment. As tough as the treatments are, I think the emotional anguish is the sometimes hardest, or it was for me, during that in-between period. And what I'd say is, after you've made your decision, don't look back. Take a breath, go through it. I, I felt a relief once the surgery date was set. I was scared as hell the night before, but the decision was made, it was out of my hands, I knew what I was going to do. And the hard thing is not to look back and say, shoulda, coulda, woulda. I agree with you 100% Lee. When I was first diagnosed, between the time when I was first diagnosed and when I made my decision as far as what direction to go, it was like there was a tornado going through my mind where I would have a passing thought, a consideration perhaps, and as I was thinking about it, another thought of impending doom would push its way into my mind. And then I would think about that one, and then another thought would arrive. It was like thoughts were forcing themselves into my mind. And I had no say And this tornado of thoughts was spinning in my mind. And there came a point when I gathered the information and I made the decision which direction I was gonna go. And in that moment, it became peaceful. And in retrospect, I was able to see that prior to making the decision, I was in a maze in my mind. I did not know if I turned left or right, which way was going to be the right way. And I realized you simply have to make, I realized for me, I realized for me, I simply had to make a choice and go forward. And when that happened, the maze turned into a labyrinth. And for those of you who are listening, a labyrinth, if you don't know what one is, it looks like a maze, but it's really just one path. Oh my gosh, and Lee is showing me a tattoo of a labyrinth on his chest. <laughs> I think you have something to say, do you not, sir? As I did that, I all of a sudden flashed on LBJ when he had his appendectomy and showed the public what his scar looked like. <laughs> what was that? I was a kid then, and he showed everybody his belly, you know, with the scar. I mean, can you imagine a president doing that? Amazing. Hmm. So I was in a maze until I made the decision, and then I was in a labyrinth. And 
uh, what was clear for me is there's only one direction to mm -hmm. go and that's the direction I'm going and it's going to go as it goes. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was a blessing. It was a privilege to recognize, let go. You've made your decision. You do not know how this is going to go. And either does anybody else with any cancer diagnosis, mostly, I, I just said any, like it's a fact, but you get, nobody knew how my cancer diagnosis was going to go. No one knew how the treatment would ultimately turn out. And all there was to do was to go forward. Now that I'm on the other side of it, and I've gotten to be old and more philosophical, I realize that um, for all of us, we have no idea, whether you have cancer or not, we go through life thinking we know what the future is going to hold, but we wake up every morning and we, well, we don't know if we're going to wake up every morning or what the day brings. And you can't go through life fearfully. You make your choices, you make your decisions, you follow your path. Along the way, hopefully, you're aware enough to make mid-course corrections when you need to. But you just have to do the path. Yeah. This diagnosis also brought to my attention that I lived life like it was certain. And now I recognize that it's not. And, you know, it's now, you know, September 2020. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. And the most of the planet, a good portion of the planet, human beings, they're recognizing, they're now experiencing nothing is certain. Especially in the beginning months mm -hmm. when we weren't certain what it was going to be like you know life is not certain and all one can do is go forward you know remind myself i've made it this far you know i i will make the decision when the time comes when the situation arises i will make it but when we wonder what decision we'll make if if something happens and you start living in the world of what if and the imagination and then the mind that likes to be in survival mode starts making decisions for us about the what ifs. Like that's a bad neighborhood uh -huh. and it doesn't end. There's no end to it. And you don't want to go there. It's, it's really a blessing to have that awareness show up. And you know, and I will say that, do I live like that all the time now? No, but that awareness returns to the forefront of my mind more frequently and more rapidly now that I've had these experiences with the cancer diagnosis and recognize I don't know how life's going to go. I don't have a whole lot of say and I'm going to do all that I can to be fulfilled and grateful and in awe of this life because there's no saying when it's going to come to an end. Well said. Hmm. So I do have a question for you on a more practical note. I also had to wear adult Depends, adult undergarments. And I'm curious what that was like for you to wear them. And I'm asking because I actually did all I could to not wear them in public. I so struggled and felt so ashamed of wearing them, even in front of people who also would have been wearing them as patients. To me, it was one of the most difficult circumstances to navigate. I have a colostomy. 
And I think I navigated this better than wearing a diaper. I had a radiation appointment and my bowels could not be counted on. And I didn't want to wear the adult undergarment under my sweatpants. So I cut out a piece of it about maybe three by three or four by four and put it in my underwear and sat on it. And it was a 45 minute ride to the hospital because I was going to Guthrie and Sayre. By the time I got there, I was in so much pain from sitting on this little piece of material that was just, you know, all my weight pushing up against my anus, my rectum, the tumor. Like I made myself suffer so unnecessarily that I did not want to be seen in a diaper. And it kind of overwhelmed my thinking at the time. So I'm asking because I'm really curious what it was like for you. It was, it was tough. I remember when I went to go buy them. It was embarrassing. You know, I walked in to the store and I had no idea where they were. I did not want to go ask somebody, <laughs> where are the adult diapers? So I wandered around. I saw the aisle. I looked. Is there anybody around that I know? Oh my God. And then, you know, you're presented with a range of... Why didn't you go to a different city? <laughs> What's an hour drive? <laughs> Good question. Um, <laughs> too old, too soon, too smart, too late. Uh, so you're presented with a range of choices. Uh, and you don't know, you know, which one is going to fit best? Which one won't leak? Um, so I had asked some other guys, luckily, um, who had been there before me, what they recommended. I got the box. I got online, continued to look around to see who's there. What was interesting is that probably on my second or third trip there, I ended up bumping into um, a colleague of mine who had also been recently diagnosed <laughs> with prostate cancer, and he was there to buy the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how did you uh, come to this awareness? Well, how did you discover I asked this? him how he was doing, and he asked me how I was doing, and we started to talk about prostate cancer. And then I looked at him and I said, this is what I was here for. And he kind of laughed and he said, he was there for that too. And we kind of shared that, that moment, you know. Lee, that actually sounds wonderful. It was probably the, <laughs> the most genuine interaction I had with that guy in all the years I knew him. Yeah, well, no kidding. Like, you both go there fearing you're going to see someone you know. You both see each other. You know, the mind is like, oh, no. Like, okay, after we're done talking, I'll go look in the uh, magazine section. I'll go look in the, uh, the pain medication and wander around like I'm just shopping because I'm not going to be caught in the aisle. And you two open up and you start talking. Yeah, this was a former principal there. that I worked with. So here it was, he was my boss, I was a teacher in his school. You know, this was years before, but, you know, there was all that history. So anyway, um, wore the diapers, um, and the other thing that I was uh, cautioned, well, you have to wear looser-fitting pants, and the other thing I was told is to wear black pants at all times. Do not wear khaki or light-colored pants because in if, case there's a leak. if there's a leak, it would show on light-colored pants. 
And then as I got more control, initially what I did was I would put a pad inside the adult diaper so that I didn't have to change the adult diaper every single time. And mm. then over time, I got smaller and smaller pads. And then a friend said, you know, what you could do is just buy the typical size pad and you could cut it in half and just fold it over and tape it and insert that in. So you get more pad for your dollar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that worked out okay until one day, I guess I didn't tape it well. And you know, the inside of the adult pad has, uh, or the baby ones, has this hydrogel kind of stuff. And when mm -hmm. it gets wet, it swells. Well, if it's in, an in a contained pad, it stays in there. This one time, I hadn't taped it well. I had urinated in it. It started to swell, and all the gel came out of the top of the pad. And I was um, coated in urine-soaked gel, <laughs> which was oh a lovely my. feeling. So you talk about, you know, not wanting to be out in public wearing this thing. Where were you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for the comic relief. <laughs> You know, right now I have no recollection of where I was. I remember going to the bathroom and having to strip down and get in the shower and try to rinse the gel off of me. Oh my goodness. See, this is so valuable for people who have been through this or are going through this and are listening right now and they're recognizing, oh my gosh, like, you know, this is completely normal. To, to want to hide this or to have these issues and to feel so gross and to feel like I failed and to mm -hmm. feel like my masculinity is not in check and all these cultural imposed expectations of human beings that we're supposed to pretend that our bodies are not these organic things mm -hmm. that sometimes fail. Yeah. We keep ourselves clean and looking a certain way and held a certain way and I don't have bodily issues and God forbid you do, you, you better keep them a secret. Yeah, I mean, I remember wearing um, different style pants, not tucking my shirt in. I was sure to wear shirts that covered partway down my thighs. And then initially when, right after the surgery, during the day, the catheter bag that I wore was strapped to the side of my calf. So I would have to be aware of what size, what style pants I wore and how that fit being able to take down the pants without pulling on the catheter tube, all those things that, you know, how does it look? Will somebody see that? And here it is, I'm out in public walking around with the catheter on my calf, and at a certain point as the bag fills up, you feel this warmth and the weight. So because mm. I felt it, I assumed everybody else must have seen it, you know. And of course, right. no yeah. one's noticing these things. No one's noticing. You know, I have a colostomy. It's a permanent pouch. And I am mindful of the looseness of the shirts that I wear. Uh, I find button-downs seem to keep it concealed. Now, am I concealing it because I don't want folks to know about it? No. I will go swimming. And I will just wear a pair of swimming trunks. And there's my pouch. You know, hanging on my side. Flapping in the breeze. Getting wet in the water. It's not an issue. What I find is that when I see an irregular 
like protrusion on someone's body under their clothes, it draws my eyes and I wonder what I'm looking at. It can distract me from the conversation. And my colostomy is not a secret. Uh, however, I find that having something protruding out of my shirt can just be a distraction. There was a point when I did not want it to be seen. I wanted it hidden at all times. I was ashamed of it. It, it, was, it was difficult. It was a big deal the first time I went swimming with my pouch on. I don't want to step over that. It was a process. But now I'm at a point in my life where I'm like, nah. You know, I'll be walking down the street and it's hot out and I, I wear a hernia belt because my uh, the stoma, which is the part of the intestine that exits my abdomen, it's a bit herniated, so I wear this belt to keep it in. And uh, there's times, you know, it's just too hot out and I'm walking and I'll just take the belt off. And I used to just like, you know, have this well-fitting belt around my abdomen and it's hot and sweaty and I would tolerate it because I don't want it to be seen. And now at this point in my life and this point in my level of, you know, self-comfort and self-love, I'm like, this is what I got. This is what's happening. And uh, if you're not comfortable with it, I'm okay with that because it isn't about me. Your comfort levels with life and the uh, biology of the human being it are, you know, those comfort levels are yours. And uh, I finally get that I can just be okay with what's happening. And again, like it was, it was a process. It was, it, you know, it started with, you know, wearing a diaper during radiation and being mortified. You know, having a colostomy and waking up and looking at it and in the first months not wanting to even live in this body. I don't want to be here. This thing is gross. I don't want to be sitting at a meal and all of a sudden my bowels start moving into my pouch and, and you can hear it. It's like I was just, you know, so embarrassing, so difficult. And over time, I've learned techniques and ways of managing my body and managing my diet that it doesn't happen that way. Um, it's, it's far more quiet occasionally. It's noisy. But you know, these diagnoses and treatment and post-treatment issues, they're, they're a big deal. And they bring us face-to-face -face with ourselves. And, you know, and, and for some of us in places that, you know, in areas where we have just chosen to not look up until then. It's important... To to say this stuff, uh, I find it's important for me to continue to tell my story. I've been doing interviews about prostate cancer now for 10 years, and I gain new insights into myself and what I've been through and what my, my wife and my kids and my mom and close friends and other family members went through with me as I went through this. And it's also good for folks who have already had prostate cancer and gone through this to hear somebody else's experience. And it's good for folks who are faced with this. And it's also just good for the general public to hear this. You know, um, this is all part of life. My hope is that this podcast will be listened to not just by people who have or have had cancer, but by folks who are really curious about aspects of life that they're not familiar with, aspects of life they haven't thought about, and listening to others you know, discuss and share their experiences with some very difficult circumstances. 
and just something foreign, something that makes you, some, something that often has you feel alone and unlike everyone else, has you feel like, you know, you're not like the other folks. Your, your, uh, you know, your circumstances are unique. And that can often leave us believing that our emotional struggle with it is unique. Our pain with it is unique. And it's not. Like People can relate to not wanting to feel ashamed of themselves in public. People can relate to hiding aspects of themselves that they don't want seen. Yeah, in this and society, there's so much body shaming that goes on. You know, the, the media presents this view of what we're supposed to look like. And um, mm-hmm. most of us don't look like that. Yeah, I used to be grossed out by like, you know, people burping in certain ways, I guess, or certain bodily noises until it, it came to my attention that the only reason that grossed me out is because I was ashamed of myself for the biology of my body. And I was simply projecting it onto others. And anytime someone made a noise with their body that I didn't like, it was just bringing my attention to the part of myself that I was trying to keep hidden. And they were just bringing it right back to me. And it's a, I, as I have become more comfortable and accepting and loving of my own body, I have found myself more comfortable and accepting and loving of other people and their bodies. And my experience in the world is easier and more joyful and more connected. And having you on this podcast, you being so open and honest about your experience and what worked, what didn't, what you succeeded with, what you're still navigating, it's so valuable. And I just can't tell you how grateful I am because this is the kind of information that cancer survivors need. Thank you for providing the opportunity for me and and countless others to share stories and to respond thoughtfully with questions and your own experiences. Bearing witness. Yeah, you're welcome. And so now you are 10 years out. Do you still get scans or tests of any type? Yearly, when I get my physical, um, I have blood work done, checking the PSA level. And for the first, they told me, you know, the first five years are crucial. And initially I was getting PSAs every um, three months, then six months, then nine months, then annually. And what was interesting is even up until a couple years ago, I would be anxious for the results. The chance of a recurrence at this time is very, very small. As small as somebody getting prostate cancer or less than someone getting prostate cancer in the general population. But I'm always relieved when I get the results. This year, I was supposed to have a physical and do the blood work right as COVID began. So I am behind on, on that follow-up. But at 10 mm. years, I'm not anxious right now. And when I feel comfortable, I'll go for my physical and get my blood work. And is that just a annual exam you'll always get? Yeah, rest of my life. So you are 10 years cancer-free and very low risk of recurrence. I congratulate you, my friend. Thank you. 
so appreciate your time and this conversation. People are going to get a ton out of it. Well, again, thank you for providing the opportunity and the platform and all the work that goes into preparing for this, doing it, and then making the magic happen in editing so that it's seamless when it's presented. You're so welcome. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We are currently seeking funding through a foundation or advertising. In the meantime, this podcast is funded through a combination of community support and my own personal contributions. If you would like to contribute to the podcast so we can continue to bring episodes to you and people around the world, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of St. Kid. You can find him on social media as the St. Kid. See you all on the next episode and thank you so much for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The hosts and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.